Please join us in giving special thanks to our coven of patrons. Storyfolk, Paul Jackson, Christy Carson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selina Vogenhauer. You're listening to Lore and Legend, the Halloween specials. Welcome, you're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. If you enjoy the episode today, please consider joining Christy, Paul, Sean, and Selena as patrons and help us to pay for the music, the audio effects, the art and technology that we use to enhance our telling of these wonderful stories. If you go to our website at www loreandlegend.co.uk and click support us you can find out how you're listening to part two of the 2021 halloween special from the recorded tales of the brothers grim this episode is called the three snake leaves Once, as I heard told, there was a poor man who could no longer afford to keep his only son at home. And so the son said to him, Dear father, you are so poor that I am only a burden to you. I would rather go out into the world and see if I can earn my own living. So the father gave him his blessing and took leave of him with much sorrow. About this time, the king of a very powerful kingdom was carrying on a war. The youth therefore travelled across the sea and took service under him. He joined the army on campaign, and when they came before the enemy and a battle took place, the fighting grew quickly to heated intensity. And it rained bullets so thickly that his new friends fell round him on all sides. When their captain fell too, panic spread quickly, and the men fell into disarray and began to turn so that they might flee. But the youth, seeing one of his brothers scrambling wildly from their trench, was seized with a conviction of great intensity. That the only way was forward, and to flee would only make that man's death more certain. And so enlarged by this impulse, the youth leapt forward, grabbed the other by the shoulders and locked eyes with him, cried, steady your heart and find your courage. Death lies behind as well as ahead of us. 
So forward, for family, for flag, and for fatherland. The man was steadied, and others rallied to his cries, and he pressed them forward also. And seeing his column advance, the other ranks followed, and when the smoke of the battlefield finally cleared, they had defeated the enemy. All around, men lay dead. But that first brother, whom the young man had seized by the shoulders, was still there, by his side. And from that day forward, he never left it, but was his most loyal, faithful and trusted servant. When the king heard that he had the young man to thank alone for the victory, he raised him higher than anyone else in rank. He gave him offices, titles and deeds, great treasures which propelled him to the status of first peer in the kingdom, a leader in affairs of state. He became the crown's first and most trusted minister and dedicated his life to turning his majesty's will into reality. Now, his majesty had a daughter. She was glamorous and sought after, but often appeared aloof and maudlin. She hearkened after romance, but romance of a tragic key. And it was widely known that she had made a vow to marry no one who would not promise her that if she died first, then he would allow himself to be buried alive with her. If he truly loves me, she used to say, what use would life be to him after that? At the same time, she said, she was willing to swear the same, and if he died first, well then she would be buried with him. This curious vow had, up to this time, frightened away all potential suitors, but the first minister still being a young and romantic man, had found bound up with his love of serving his majesty, a love also for his intransigent daughter. And over time, this passion grew in strength until he was wholly captivated by her. And he went down on his knee in front of his majesty to beg for the hand of his daughter. His Majesty looked on his minister with a mixture of fondness and gratitude and concern. Do you know, asked the king, what you have to promise? I shall have to go into the grave with her, he answered, if I do outlive her. But my love is so great, it is a risk that I am willing to take, sire. And so his Majesty consented. And the prince and the princess, they were wed, and they stood before the altar. His loyal servant bore the rings which symbolized their love, and which each fixing on the other's hand, they promised to love and cherish and care for one another until death did them part. And of course, as the princess desired, 
that they would follow one another into death. And their union it was celebrated with great fanfare and splendour throughout the entire kingdom. And they lived for a long time very happily with one another. But in the end it came to pass that the young princess she fell seriously ill and no doctor could save her life. The colour ebbed from her cheeks until her flesh was as cold as snow and her face was as grey and as blank as marble. And when she lay dead and the grieving prince stood over her, he recalled what he had rashly promised. In truth, it made him shudder to think of lying in her grave alive, but he knew that there was no escape. The king had set guards before all the gates, and it was not possible to avoid his fate. On the day of the funeral, his wife's body was laid upon a bier and carried in procession from the palace to the white vault of the royal mausoleum. And her husband, the prince, dressed in the black clothes of mourning, followed with soldiers and halberds on either side of him. And his faithful servant followed sorrowfully after. Before his eyes, his wife's body was laid upon a marble slab. And as the entrance to the mausoleum was drawn closed, the prince looked back over his shoulder into the anguished eyes of his faithful servant. But then the doors clicked shut, and the prince heard the sounds of heavy bolts and chains being drawn over them. Near the marble slab stood a table on which were placed four candles, four loaves of bread, and four bottles of wine. As soon as this last provision came to an end, he would have to die. So he sat there, full of grief and misery, eating every day only a tiny bit of bread and only a mouthful of wine, as he watched starvation and death creeping nearer and nearer to him. One day, as he was sat staring headlong before him, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a snake sliver out of a crack in the foundations and creep over the cold stone towards the corpse of his wife. Thinking it was going to touch her, he drew his sword and cried out deliriously, As long as I am alive, you shall not harm her. And he swung his sword back and forth in a frenzy, hacking it apart, leaving it dead on the ground in three pieces. The prince returned to his trance-like vigil. Could not say whether it was days or mere hours that he sat, but then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw again the long and sinuous body of a snake pouring itself out of the cracks in the stone floor. The prince started up, thinking that somehow the first snake had returned, but no. This snake was examining the remains of the first, 
which lay still on the floor of the frigid mausoleum like three rotting pieces of severed brown rope. The second snake circled the remains, and then it slid back towards the cracks from whence it had come. The prince let it be. It had made no move towards the princess. But moments later it returned, and this time to the prince's wandering eyes it appeared to grasp free verdant emerald leaves between its teeth. Circling the corpse of its mate, the snake shifted and pushed the three pieces of it together, and then laid the three leaves over the spaces where the prince's sword had severed it. Beneath the fronds of those leaves, before the prince's astonished eyes, the flesh of the snake miraculously knitted together, and it twitched suddenly to life and began to hiss. The prince leapt to his feet, choking on his cries of amazement, but the snakes glided hurriedly away from him into the walls. But the leaves remained lying on the ground. The prince approached them cautiously, reached for them with dread and trepidation, fearing that the slightest touch might cause them to crumble away into dust. But when he took them in his fingers, they still looked fresh and verdant, as if plucked only moments ago from the stem of whatever wondrous plant or tree they came from. And in the prince's breast stirred a feeling that he had felt only once before, that time long ago on the battlefield, that same certainty that he knew exactly what needed to be done, almost as if it had already happened. And he stood over his wife's corpse, and he pressed one of the leaves against her lips, and the other two he pressed into her eyes, and scarce had he begun to withdraw his hand when her mouth opened, and her lungs gasped, and her cheeks flushed from white to red as blood washed in torrents through her whole body again. And she started up with a cry. Ah! She screamed. Where? Where am I? And the prince, he clasped her in his arms, and tears and laughter of joy poured all at once out of him. And when the prince and the princess began to hammer and to cry furiously upon the doors of the mausoleum, they feared that nobody would hear them. But they need not have feared, because the prince's servant, of course, was kneeling just beyond those doors, keeping his own vigil for his master, determined not to leave until he knew that his master's own ghost was at rest. And when he heard the voice of the prince and the princess, he ran wildly into the palace, bursting into the great hall, throwing himself at the old king's feet, raving joyfully that his master and the king's daughter, they lived, so that all thought the man had taken leave of his senses. But the king gazed deeply into his eyes, and he did not see a madman. Scarcely believing this was not some kind of dream, the king rose and barked orders. And at once they all went together to the doors of the mausoleum. And there they listened to the breathless voices on the other side, describing the miracle of the snakes 
and the free snake leaves. Finally, the king believed them, and he ordered the doors of the mausoleum unbolted and thrown open. All of them were reunited that day with much tears and laughter of joy. The king, the prince, and the princess. And the prince gave the free snake leaves to his loyal servant, asking him to keep them safe in case they ever had need of them again. And that, if this were another kind of story, would be the end. Perhaps you're thinking that the prince and the princess lived happily ever after. But this is not that kind of story. For a while, it certainly seemed to be so. But it was an appearance only. For the princess was changed after she returned. Though warmth had been restored to her limbs, her embraces to her husband felt cold. If the light had been restored to her eyes, a gloomy darkness hung over both of them whenever they were together. He would reach out for her, and she would not reach back. At the touch of his fingers, she did not stir. Though she had always dressed in black, never before had it felt to the prince as if their life together itself were a funeral. It was like death was reaching out of the empty tomb that they had left behind them to fill their eyes and their mouths and their stomachs with his cold torpor. It was as if everything about his wife had been restored to life, except her love for him. And so the prince knew great anguish, for he still loved the princess. Until in his dreams at night he found himself once again lost in the chaos of the battlefield. His lungs filled with the sting of powder, his eyes with mud and grit, and the sun and the sky was obscured by billowing columns of black smoke. He stood amidst it all, appalled, and he began to feel something. Rage, incandescent, mounting in his chest, until it seemed that the roar of the cannons and the shattering report of the shells were being propelled out of his very own being. And when the blasts finally ceased, and the burning in his chest subsided, leaving only the churned ground and burning rubble all around to look upon, then he thought only of one thing, to find his father and draw back into his arms. And then he would wake <laughs> gasping at the shadows on the wall, and his faithful servant was there ready to slick the sweat from his brow with a damp cloth. After many months of this, the prince announced he would travel over the sea and be reunited with his father. There was to be no argument. Where the prince went, his household went also. And so a ship was chartered 
and they departed from the harbour. The princess was at the prince's side in full regalia as they scaled the ramp to the boat's high deck. But the first night of their voyage, when they sat down with the captain in his cabin to dine, between the prince and the princess, scarcely a word was spoken. The same could not be said of the captain who filled the dead air between them with his own melodious voice. He spoke of his travels. He spoke of foreign shores. He spoke of the dangers and of the tragedies of life upon the sea. And his salt-cracked tongue and his winking eye kindled something in the princess's heart. Something which she had not felt in such a long time, not since she'd come up and out of that tomb. A spark, a smouldering ember of joy. Every night the princess and the captain shared their table, while the prince withdrew to his cabin and drank with his faithful servant for solace. And over the course of those nights, the spark in the princess's heart became a bright flame, and the flame became a consuming fire. Since the day she left that tomb, she had felt her body had come out, but her spirit had remained buried there. But now this, this new passion, was proof that that was not true. Her spirit had been buried within her all along, and at last she had found someone with the power to waken it within her. But she cried tears of frustration when she looked down at her hand on the gold ring she wore inscribed with all the binding vows which she and her husband had pronounced to one another, till death do us part. The captain comforted her, drew her hands into his own, But my darling, he said, death has already parted you. This loyalty beyond the grave is unnatural. And think, he was supposed to die there in that tomb beside you. You never asked him to bring you back to life. And so he has already broken faith with you, broken his part of the sacred vow. That is why he can barely look at you now and you barely him. Perhaps, perhaps it would only be right if we should help him to fulfill the vow which he has broken. Well, when the ship had crossed half the length of the ocean to the prince's former land, the captain and the princess seized the prince from his bed under the cover of night. They bound him, and they gagged him, and they hauled him struggling up to the deck, where they threw him over the rail and into the ink-black waves of the sea. And at the sound of the body hitting the water, the princess gave a laugh, a laugh that was wild and free. At last, it's done. Come, let us sail to one of your foreign shores, and when we are ready to return, We will tell my father of my husband's tragic accident at sea. We'll be married then, and you will become a prince just like he did. But the faithful servant 
had seen everything. And quickly, he let down a little boat into the sea, unobserved by the captain and the princess. And he rowed fast over the waves towards the body of his master, while the captain sailed the great vessel faithful servant pulled his master up out of the water and into the boat. But it was too late. Already he was limp and lifeless, his bound body drowned in the water. But then the servant reached into the pouch which he kept always by his breast, and with shaking fingers he drew out the three emerald leaves which his master had entrusted to him by the entrance to that tomb. And he pressed them onto his master's lips and into his eyes. And at the touch of the free snake leaves, the prince suddenly heaved, spewing up the salt water from his lungs. And at once his breath came back into him quick and hot. He exchanged a look with his servant. And without a word, they both snatched up the oars. And they began to row as hard as they could day and night to reach the shore. The captain and the princess sailed on in the opposite direction. Many months later, the ship of the captain and the princess returned to their native harbour. And the princess went at once to see her father the king. And when she came before him, she wore a mask of anguish and tragedy. The king looked upon her questioningly. Why have you returned alone? Where is your husband, my daughter? Oh, father, she sobbed. I bring the most terrible news. While we were at sea, my husband and I were consumed with a fever, and he, alas, died quite suddenly. If not for the care of our good captain, that illness, it would have taken me as well. So if you have any questions, please ask that good man. He himself was at the prince's deathbed. He can tell you everything. The king studied his daughter intently for a moment, his brow furrowed darkly, and then he passed his hand before his eyes, and he rose to his feet and he said, If your husband is dead, then I will bring the dead to life again. And he clapped his hands, and the door of the chamber swung open, and standing there behind them was the prince and his loyal servant. At once, the princess collapsed thunderstruck, fell down upon her knees, begging her father and her husband for mercy. But the king said, you shall have no mercy. I never knew that such evil lay within the heart of my own daughter. He was ready to die with you, restored you to life again. But you betrayed him while he was sleeping, tossed him into the ocean and left him for dead. And for this, the only just punishment is death. But he cannot break his vow, 
she cried desperately, and she turned towards the prince. Husband, you swore to care for me until death did part us. You cannot break a vow made before God, or else you'll see your soul damned forever. The prince gazed down at her, and his eyes were cold. Your heart is as dead to shame as it is to me, to invoke the vows you treated with such bold contempt. And he opened his mouth to confirm the king's sentence of death. But then he stopped, because there was a hand laid upon his arm. He turned, and it was his faithful servant standing by him looking at him imploringly. The prince turned back to her. Your words are cunning, for you depend upon the knowledge that my own word is no dead letter with me. So be it. And the prince appealed upon the king to change his sentence. Banishment forever for the princess and her lover, stripped of all their worldly wealth, and friendless forever in every kingdom. The captain and the princess were glad to be alive, and yet they were defiant of the rest of the edict. And using all of their wiles, they sought to have the captain's ship loaded up with all the provisions and worldly treasures that the pair of them knew how to lay hands on in the city. And in the dead of night, laden with all of these riches, the captain cast off the moorings of his ship and they made to escape silently out of the harbour under the cover of night. But before the ship could clear the harbour mouth, the cool night air was cut by the report of three cannonballs. On the quayside, in the moonlight, the prince stood behind the cannon. And as he watched his wife's ship sinking into the murky depths, he felt nothing. There was no anguish in his heart, no rage in his spirit, but only the grim and airless chill of the tomb, the black ice of the waves, in which he had drowned, and the cold steel in the hands which gripped the cord of the cannon's gunlock. And once the ship lay in the depths of its watery grave, the prince's only words were this, Till death do us part, my darling. You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Halloween Special, Part 2, The Three Snake Leaves. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott. The Lore and Legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentle, with additional music by Derek and Brendan Feister. 
Music and sound effects were also sourced from the community at freesound.org, with particular thanks to users Satuniman, Toilet Roll Tube, and Phonos UFP for their soundscapes. You can find full audio credits on the blog post that accompanies this episode. To find out more about our episodes, you can visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk and you can check out those episode blog posts. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, then do please join our family of patrons to support the podcast. Visit our website, click support us and find out how you can do so. Thanks once again for listening. Have a bone-chilling and spine-tingling Halloween holiday. But make sure that you stay safe out there, story folk.